0: Chapter Seven of the Mohawk Valley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Mohawk Valley: Its Legends and Its History by W. Max Reed. Chapter Seven: Count Frontenac and the Mohawk Valley. Count de Frontenac, who was twice Governor of Canada is so closely connected with the history of the mohawk valley by his warlike expeditions against the iroquois and the massacre of the inhabitants of schenectady that we cannot write the history of the valley without frequent mention of his name he was born in france in sixteen twenty and in early manhood served in the french army and distinguished himself in a war against the turks in sixteen forty eight he married anne lagrange trianon against her father's wishes she was a favourite companion of mademoiselle de Montpensier, princess of orleans and was one of the beauties of the court of louis the fifteenth the happiness of the newly-wedded pair was of short duration as love on her part at least soon changed to aversion and after the birth of a son the countess left her husband to follow the fortunes of mademoiselle de montpensier in sixteen seventy two count de frontenac received the appointment of governor of all new france it is said that he accepted the appointment to deliver himself from the imperious temper of his wife and afford him some means of living another story is that he had found favor in the eyes of madame de montespan one of the favorites of louis the fourteenth and the jealous king appointed him governor of new france to get him away from madame frontenac's administration was vigorous and satisfactory but coming in contact with the jesuits was recalled in sixteen eighty one and a new governor named la fave de la barre appointed in his place the affairs of New France soon going from bad to worse under the new administration of La Barre, he was also recalled, and Marquis de Denonville assumed the vacant office. The new governor soon found himself involved in a war with the Iroquois of such magnitude that the colony of New France was brought to the brink of ruin. He also was recalled, and Frontenac again made governor it is said that his wife used her influence in having him appointed the second time in order to get him out of the country this was in sixteen eighty nine frontenac entered into the campaign of sixteen ninety with vigor and sent three war parties of french and indians against the english one against albany which was diverted and resulted in the massacre of schenectady one against the border settlements of new hampshire and the third to those of Maine, all of which were successful in murdering defenseless men, women, and children. In 1696, Frontenac organized the famous expedition against the Onondagas and Oneidas for the purpose of exterminating them and thereby conquering the Iroquois. On the 4th of July of that year, he left Montreal at the head of about 2,200 men, about one-third of whom were Canadian Indians. The result of that expedition is well known to history, and may be called a failure in more ways than one. It is said that the destruction of the Indian villages was secondary to the real object of this expedition. It may be stated here that Frontenac, when he arrived at the Onondaga villages, found nothing but burned and deserted ruins and the Indian standing crops. These he destroyed and took up his march home again. It is said that the Count was so infirm that he was carried most of the way on a litter. Tradition says that in one of the periodical raids of the Mohawks on their foes, the Algonquins, during the absence of Frontenac in France, they secured a number of prisoners, among whom was a beautiful half-breed girl that frontenac had a paternal interest in and who had received the rudiments of education by his efforts every effort had been made in vain during occasional cessation of hostilities between the french and the mohawks to recover this child but beyond the report of a wandering jesuit that he had seen a christian captive living contentedly as the wife of a young mohawk chief He had not been able to hear from his nut-brown daughter. The real object of the expedition of 1696 was to recover this child, whom he had learned to love. We will now trace this child from her home in Canada to her new home on the banks of the Mohawk River. The usual route of war parties between Canada and the Mohawk and Hudson Valleys was by the way of Lake Champlain, as far as Ballston where the trail divided, one striking the Mohawk at Schenectady, another through Glenville to Lewis Creek at andriouche and another through Galway and down the Chuktanunda Creek. It is probable that the latter route was taken by the party of Mohawks, with the half-breed daughter of Count Frontenac as one of the captives. At that time she was about sixteen years old, of medium height, well-developed, and just budding into womanhood her black hair and eyes her erect form and firm step while on the march were indicative of her huron mother and forest training while the clear complexion with its dusky hue and the large half-closed eyes and dignity of carriage proclaimed the sin of her father while encamped near the division of the trail at ballston the warriors were joined by an indian hunting party well laden with the spoils of the chase the leader of the hunting party achawi a young indian already noted in his tribe for his courage and skill in battle and his wisdom and counsel was a model of savage beauty his tall well-proportioned form and well-poised head his long black hair flowing from under a band of eagle feathers his piercing black eyes and noble features unadorned with the war paint that marred the faces of his companions were enhanced by the picturesque costume he wore over the short leggings which left his shapely limbs bare halfway above the knee hung a heavy beaded skirt of buckskin while depending from the left shoulder and passing under the right arm leaving the upper part of the breast bare was a short robe of otter. Outside the robe on his right side hung a highly ornamented bow and quiver of arrows, and his feet were covered with beaded moccasins. His name, Ashawi, settler of disputes, would indicate that he was a man of more than ordinary ability in the councils of his tribe at Tayanandaroga, Fort Hunter as soon as the identity of the newcomers was established the party assumed the usual stoical indifference of indians although their advent well laden with fresh venison was welcome to the weary and hungry warriors and their captives onita and her female companions were seated near the fire their forms well covered with blankets and did not attract the attention of a but out from the folds that covered her head oneida gazed with increasing interest on the form of this young warrior who compared with her war-stained and painted captors with their belts decorated with the scalps of her slain friends seemed like a creature from another world on the following morning the young maiden was early awake and hastened to the stream to wash away the stains of travel and pay additional care to the details of her simple toilet returning slowly through the forest her eyes radiant and her cheeks glowing from her ablution she became aware of the approach of the young warrior no wonder this untutored son of the forest gazed entranced at the vision that so unexpectedly appeared before him her beautiful form but scantily covered by the simple robe worn by the denizens of the forest was revealed in all its beauty of outline her long black hair bound with a band of silver across her forehead and the tresses brought forward half concealed yet half revealed the beauty of her naked arm and shoulder hastily drawing her blanket around her she returned his gaze of admiration with a smile that disclosed her pearly teeth and her delight at the accidental meeting. It was a case of love at first sight, and after a few words in the Huron language, they returned together to the camp, and found preparation being made for immediate departure for the Mohawk River, where they arrived in a drizzling rain at nightfall, and at once found shelter along the shore, under the hanging rocks of the Chuctanunda. Some of the party, however, were soon sent forward to procure boats to convey the captive women to Taonandaroga. In the morning, the canoes having arrived, Ashawi was placed in charge of one of the canoes containing the women, one of whom was Onita, and improved his opportunity by making love to the stranger. Arriving at Taonandaroga, it was decided that the canoe of Ashawi should continue to Canyega and that oneida should be placed in the family of the aunt of kateri tekakwitha who was formerly a huron captive although oneida pined for her home on the st lawrence the presence of the jesuit father de lamberville and the frequent visits of ashawi made her life on the mohawk more bearable than if she had been left entirely to the mercy of the fretful aunt of tekakwitha although indian maids had occupied ashawi's lodge for a limited period in experimental marriages which was made lawful by custom he had never met a maiden before that he was willing to take as his wife it was not long therefore before he gained the consent of onita and with the blessing of father de lamberville and according to the simple rites of his tribe he took her to his lodge at Tiononderoga the repeated attempts made by the count to regain his daughter kept them in constant fear that he would at last succeed and it was on this account that ashawi removed his lodge to a secluded glen near the chuctanunda within the limits of the present city of amsterdam this precaution was well taken for in sixteen ninety three count frontenac sent an expedition against the mohawks destroyed their three castles, or villages, and three hundred men, women, and children were taken prisoners, hoping that among them he might find his lost daughter. This expedition was pursued by General Schuyler and a party of Mohawks, and narrowly escaped destruction. The fleeing Frenchmen reached the Hudson, where, to their dismay, they found the ice breaking up and drifting down the stream. Happily for them, a large sheet of it became wedged at a turn of the river, forming a temporary bridge over which they crossed in safety. Among the border scouts and traders that were scattered along the valley of the Mohawk was a renegade Fleming by the name of Hanyost. In early youth he had deserted from the French ranks in Flanders, came to New France, afterward made his way down to the dutch settlements on the hudson and later became domiciled among the mohawks and adopted the life of a hunter up to this time he had been faithful to the interests of the dutch settlers and the mohawks and was aware of the presence in the valley of count frontenac's half-caste daughter and of the efforts of the count to recover her previous to the expedition of the french against the onondagas Hanyost had a difficulty with an indian trapper which had been referred for arbitration to the young mohawk chief a Showie, settler of disputes and had felt aggrieved at the award that had been given against him the scorn with which the young chief met his charge of unfairness stung him to the soul but fearing the strong arm of the young savage he had nursed his revenge in secret Hearing of the presence of Frontenac on the shores of Lake Ontario, he deserted his friends and offered his services to the Count as guide, at the same time informing him of the whereabouts of his daughter and her husband. A ignorant of the hostile force that had entered his country, was off with his party at a summer camp near Conadiega or Trenton Falls. Hanyost, having informed the commander of the french forces that by surprising this party he would be able to recover his long-lost daughter frontenac at once detached a small but efficient force from the main body of the army to strike the blow it is said that a dozen musketeers with twenty-five pikemen led by baron de beconcourt and chevalier de gray the former having the chief command were sent upon this duty, with Hanyos to guide them to the village of Ashawi. Just before dawn of the second day, the party found themselves in the neighborhood of the Indian village, and at once made preparations for an attack, while yet the savages were wrapped in repose. The baron, after carefully examining the hilly passes, determined to head the attack, while Chevalier de Grey, with hanyos to mark out his prey should pounce upon the chieftain's wife the followers were warned not to injure the female captives but to give no quarter to their defenders the inhabitants of the fated village secure in their isolated situation had neglected all precautions against surprise and were aroused from slumber with the whizzing of hand grenades which set fire to the main row of frail wigwams which formed the little street and kindled the dry mats stretched over them into instant flames and then as the startled warriors leaped all naked and unarmed from the blazing lodges they found themselves surrounded by the french pikemen waiting only for a volley from the musketeers the soldiers rushed upon the wretched savages slaughtering them Many there were, however, who, with a showie as their head, acquitted themselves like warriors. Snatching their weapons from the flames, they sprang upon the pikemen with irresistible fury. Their heavy war clubs beat down and splintered the fragile spears of the Frenchmen, while their corselets rang with the blows of tomahawk and knife. De Grey, in the meantime, watched the shrieking forms of the females, expecting each moment to see the pale features of the christian captive the mohawks began now to wage a more successful resistance and just when the fight was raging hottest he saw a tall warrior disengage himself from the melee and dash upon and brain with his tomahawk a frenchman who had also separated himself from his party The quick eye of de Grey caught a glimpse of a lithe female form with an infant in her arms, in pursuit of whom the luckless Frenchman met his death by the strong arm of Achaoui. It was the wife of Achaoui fleeing to the hills for safety. De Grey raised his pistol to fire at the chieftain when the track of the flying girl brought her directly in his line of sight and he held his fire. Ashawi in the meantime had been cut off from his people by the soldiers who closed in upon the space which his terrible arm had a moment before kept open seeing the hopelessness of his position he made a dash at his foes with his war club fairly cleaving a path to his fleeing wife and with arms outstretched to protect her from the dropping shots of the enemy he bounded after her and before de Grey and Hanyost, with seven others, fairly got in pursuit, Ashawi, who still kept behind his wife, was far in advance of the pursuing party. Her forest training had made Oneet a fleet of foot, and hearing the cheering voice of her loved warrior behind her, she urged her fight over Crag and fell, and soon reached the head of a rocky pass, which it would take some moments for any but an American forester to climb. Lifting his wife to the ledge above, he placed her infant in her arms and bade her speed her way to the cavern among the hills. Ashawi looked a moment after her retreating form, and then coolly swung himself to the ledge which commanded the pass. His tomahawk and war club had been lost in the strife, but he still carried at his back his bow and quiver. There were but three arrows in the quiver, and the mohawk was determined to have the life of an enemy in exchange for each of them. Placing himself behind a rock that partly concealed his form, he strung his bow, and fitting an arrow to the string, he aimed at the foremost soldier that was climbing the crags below. With the swiftness of a bullet, the arrow took its flight and buried itself in the throat of its victim, who fell, dislodging two of his comrades in his fall and temporarily checking pursuit. A we, waiting until the soldiers were again advancing, sent another arrow in their midst with almost the same result. Fitting his last arrow to the string, he raised his bow, but before he could fire, a shot from the gun of Hanyost struck his thumb, disabling it. Again fleeing, he took a different direction from that taken by his wife, hoping to draw the soldiers in pursuit of himself until she should reach a place of safety. After a while, he observed that three of the soldiers were following him, while de Grey, Hanyost, and one of the pikemen were taking a direct route to the cavern, with Hanyost in the lead, who was undoubtedly aware of the situation of this hidden rendezvous and rightly guessed the ruse of a shawi. The young Mohawk at once saw the object of Hanyost, and quick as thought took a few steps within the thicket to still mislead his pursuers, bounded across a mountain torrent, leaving his footmarks in its banks, and then turned shortly on a rock beyond, recrossed the stream, and concealed himself behind a fallen tree until his pursuers had passed by on the false trail. A rocky hillock now only divided him from the point to which he had directed his wife by another route, and to which Hanyost and his party were urging their way. Springing from crag to crag, the hunted warrior at last planted his foot on the roots of a blasted oak that shot its limbs above the cavern, just as his wife, with her babe clasped to her bosom, sank exhausted within the shadows of the cavern. Looking down, he saw de Grey and his followers making a laborious ascent of the crags below, with Hanyost in advance, and de Grey and the musketeer close behind. The scout, who had evidently caught sight of the exhausted female at the mouth of the cavern, gave an exultant cry. "'God help thee, bold archer! The game of life is nearly up, the quiver is empty!' In his agony at the thought of his wife, he raised his bow and became aware that the forgotten arrow was clasped in his bleeding fingers. Although his stiffened thumb forbade its use, Ashawi fitted the remaining arrow to the string, prepared to take the life of one more of his enemies, if possible. Bracing his knee upon the flinty rock, while the muscles of his body swelled as if all its energies were embodied in this supreme effort, he drew the arrow back with his two fingers, without the use of his bleeding thumb, and aimed at the treacherous scout. The twanging bowspring dismissed his last arrow straight to the heart of Hanyost. The dying wretch clutched the sword chain of de Grey, and the two went rolling down the glen together and de gray was not unwilling to abandon the pursuit when the musketeer hastening to his assistance had disengaged him bruised and bloody from the rigid embrace of the corpse Achawi, descending from his cavern collected the remnants of his band and wreaked terrible vengeance upon the murderers most of whom they cut off before they could join the main body of the French army. Count Frontenac returned to Canada and died in 1698, and the existence of his half-caste daughter was soon forgotten. End of Chapter Seven. Recording by Roger Meline.